to the BioCharisma Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. This week, we have Sky Huddleston. Sky Huddleston is an inventor, entrepreneur, uh, renovator, um, hybridizer. So you know that's a man after my own heart. He is the creator of the Liberator uh, Rocket Heaters. Uh, if you go to liberatorheater.com, you can see the rocket mass heaters or excuse me, rocket stoves that I make them into rocket mass heaters. If you don't know what a rocket stove is or rocket mass heater, the best way to describe it is you take a little bit of wood or pellets, you drop it down a nice little, I guess you'd say uh, funnel <laughs> uh, inlet and air passes over this and through a convection current, you have an ignition and get a very, very hot fire. And because a hot fire is a clean fire, these, these systems produce very little emissions and can do a lot of work for very little input. And so this year is the first year that I hadn't had a rocket mass heater in, God, 10 years, 11 years. And I, I felt naked without it because just using a conventional, um, I guess, insert wood stove, it took a ton of fuel and it really didn't heat things up all that much. So I love this technology. I love the fact that it's made right here in Missouri, in the United States. And I've been to their shop and it, it's first rate. They're, they're producing these rocket mass heaters with the best steel, their welds are beautiful. All the bears that I've had, all my friends that have come over to look at the machine, they've all been impressed. And uh, I will be posting on Instagram uh, a build of what I'm doing with this rocket mass heater. And my mass will be a bathtub. <laughs> so the mass will be the, the actual cast iron of the tub and then the water that's within it. And then uh, this will be one of the secondary ways I warm the water that uh, will keep the bathtub nice and hot because I, I like, I love sauna and I love hot baths, especially wood fired baths. And uh, there's a very efficient way to uh, heat the water that goes into the bathtub also. So Sky Huddleston is a man after my own heart. Um, this podcast is kind of technical, so uh, have your thinking caps on. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a good podcast to watch because I reference a lot of different things that he brings up um, through the screen. It's a short one, but it's packed with a lot of dense information, especially if you find yourself to be a homesteader or domesteader anytime soon or if you have a farm. Uh, because the type of things that we talk about, the, the specific machines that we talk about can lead to energy independence. So I'll catch you on the flip side. We are here today with Sky Huddleston, one of the main owners of rocketheater.com. Um, the Liberator rocket heaters are probably the best made rocket mass heaters that I've ever come across. Um, Sky is an inventor. He's an innovator. He's a hybridizer. Uh, so he's definitely a man after my own heart. Sky, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me on. 
So I've been getting into Bork engines ever since thinking, you know, I saw your presentation. Uh, I have it up here before I met you and I didn't even realize it was you. Um, it was at the eMedia Press. It was, what was that presentation out in Spokane, Washington? Yeah, so I did a um, presentation on Scotch Oak Engine technology in 2021. I did that in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and that was at the Energy Science and Technology Conference hosted and organized by eMedia Press. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that was a pretty interesting presentation I did on the technology. I'm actually going to be doing another one in early July, so next month. Um, I'll be doing another presentation similar, you know, on Scotch Oak Engine technology and the various updates we've made and where we're going with the technology. Yeah, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna dumb this down quite a bit <laughs> because uh, I have a tendency to be very verbose with people. They're like, "What the hell are you talking about?" So when we say a Scotch yoke engine, um, essentially the reason why I have Sky on Sky, the reason why I have you on is because you're an innovator and you're into resilience. You know, we got to meet in person for a good three hours when I came up to your shop in northern Missouri, or as north of me in mid-Missouri. And it was just so obvious that everything that you're doing is about bringing, I guess you would say, more efficiency, which means higher output energy to people. And whether you're doing wood gasification in your rocket mass heaters, whether you're um, revising and building your own Bork engines, which are these Scotch yoke engines and other things that you told me not to mention. <laughs> the the whole, your whole, I guess you'd say operation is is exactly what the United States of America needs to, to be able to forge forward with, with all the coming, I guess you would say imposed energetic, um, limitations yeah yeah so we're going to take resource and energy scarcity and we're going to end it awesome so please give give our audience a little bit of a background of what actually got you into this type of work so well the wood stove specifically right so my father and i were looking for a wood stove for our home because we wanted a backup source of heat if the power went down and um so before you drop $1,000 on a wood stove, obviously one of the things you do is a lot of research. Mm -hmm. So we did that, that's what we did. And then we happened to pull on rocket stove and rocket mass heater technology and we realized, hey, wait, you know, after we read Ernie and Erica Wisner's book on the subject, right? We realized, wait, nobody's actually commercializing this technology and it's ripe for commercialization. It's tested, it's proven, it has, you know, a, a 20, 30 year track record in history. So you know, there's lots of precedents for this technology, but nobody's commercialized it. So that's what we did. We took the technology, we created a unit that was suitable for mass manufacturing and economies of scale, and we put it into production, got it EPA certified, got it tested to you all standards, spent a boatload of money on those two things, and now we're producing them in mass for the common market. So they're insurance compliant, building code compliant, EPA you know, EPA certified for low emissions profile. Actually, it's one of the lowest emissions profile heaters ever tested by the, you know, EPA certified labs. So that's what we did. 
as and, far as how I got into engine technology, um, my I, I I was uh raised by a single father, right? I was very fortunate in that regards. Um, but we didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. And so we always had to fix the engine, right? Rather than buy a new mm -hmm. car or buy a new lawnmower, right? And I really didn't like how we always couldn't do this or couldn't do that or couldn't even get good deals on, you know, whatever it is that we've been wanting for a long time because it was so far out that the gas money would cost so much, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what that ultimately entailed was I needed to find a solution that would eliminate this problem, the systemic problem that's been plaguing everyone for a hundred years, once and for all. So that that's where I set out to make the most efficient engine in the world. It's not just efficient, but really simple. Because as somebody who's fixed more than a handful of engines, mm -hmm. I don't like fixing engines. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're finicky. Yes. They are on the precipice, on the cusp of failure all the time. Right. You, know, you have all these nodes of failure that if any one thing goes wrong, it breaks and it's so hard to diagnose half the time, mm -hmm. right? So I wanted something that was not just super energy efficient, right? I wanted something that was long lasting, reliable, doesn't break hardly ever. When it does break, it's bone stone simple and easy to diagnose and repair very quickly with no specialized tooling. And ultimately, the, the, the objective of this is to decentralized kilowatt and megawatt class utility scale power on a commercial and residential level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a back to the future thing. I have a feeling that with the false history that we've been given, the real history was we had a much more decentralized way of energy, since we can pretty much pull energy out of so many different aspects of our environment. Um, and that's why I love, that's why I had to feature you on on the podcast is because one, your product is amazing. <laughs> the one product that I have of yours, the, the Liberator rocket heater, but two, the other work that, that I know your heart is in, it will really make a significant difference for people. And just for, just for um, shits and giggles with this is any of us that have a homestead or a domestead or live on a farm, um, and subjected to any type of power outage, no matter what, you're going to need some sort of power backup system. You're going to need some system, some redundancy that allows you to keep your food cold, that will allow you to, if you're in the wintertime and don't have wood, uh, have some way to heat yourself, just ways in which you can ensure the viability of your investment. And so generators are usually high on the priority list for people that have they're doing any type of off-gridding or homesteading lifestyle any type of farm you know you need generators to run pumps and all the rest of it with this uh scotch yoke type of engine that you're that you are um how how should i say it reconfiguring uh, modernizing modernizing okay i have a great animation here i think you'll appreciate from SciTech. Um, that shows what one of these engines look like. These yeah, Cytec's actually going into production in 2025. They're building them in China as range extenders for battery electric vehicles. Right. Uh, the CMC Cytec engine, uh, the, all, that was actually fully developed in the 90s 
and didn't go anywhere. And I found out literally yesterday that they're putting them in production in China, scheduled for 20.5 for range extenders for hybrids. Um, yes. The Scotch engine has a lot of the unique advantages of a Scotch engine, but not all of them, right? So some of the things that I disagree with Scitech's development on is they're using four strokes per cycle, they're using overhead valves, uh, they're using a they're using insert bearings, right, rather than right. moment bearings. So the CMC Scitech engine is a Scotch oak engine that's quote unquote modernized, but modernized in a conventional sense, yes. in the way that an OEM would do it not in, in the way that you would want to build it if you were trying to achieve, you know, a 10 million mile lifespan. Right. So why don't you, so I'm showing an animation of the SciTech engine right now, and it does look much more complicated than what you were actually showing me at your shop. Like yeah. just the, the, just this whole configuration. Can you see it on your side? Yes, I can. Yeah, yeah. That's a uh, that's a flat four Scotch yoke engine. But it, the other thing too is that it's not a detonation engine. So that's using almost certainly an auto cycle from a thermodynamics perspective, possibly a diesel cycle, but probably an auto cycle. Um, uh, we're actually building Thicket Jacob cycle engines, so we're not an auto cycle. We're not a diesel cycle. We're not a Rankine cycle. We're not a Brighton cycle. We're not a Humphrey cycle. We are an entirely different thermodynamic cycle entirely called the Fickett Jacobs cycle. So that's pure isochoric constant volume heat addition, which is inherently more efficient than all those previous cycles because it's a detonation-based cycle. Obviously, you know, to put it to put an analogy to that, right? <clears throat> there's actually more energy in an equivalent cylinder of wood than there is in a cylinder of equal size of dynamite. But obviously, if you burn wood and you release that energy slowly, it's not going to get a lot of work done. Whereas that dynamite is boom, Immediate. right? And then you use it to bust rocks or you know whatever. Well, if you if you're burning your gasoline slowly, that is deflagration subsonic. Uh, you're not going to get nearly as much energy out as if you detonate it supersonically at top dead center, mm -hmm. because any heat that you add to the fuel and air mix, any heat that you add to your gas pulse after the piston has started moving you know, away from top dead center and towards bottom dead center, that heat addition means that you're adding heat to a gas volume that's already starting to expand and it has less volume to expand into than it otherwise would have if it were at top dead center. And so mm -hmm. it's an inherently less thermodynamically efficient methodology of adding heat to a heat engine. Mm -hmm. The only reason why people build auto cycle and diesel cycle engines is because it's commonly believed that a detonation-based cycle will break a conventional engine, which is true. It will break a conventional engine, but it's believed that all engines will break under detonation conditions if they're a piston engine, which is not true. We know this to be true because of research that was done out of Eastern Europe um, less than 10 years ago, if my memory serves. And uh, they were actually using a, what's called pulse compression detonation wave engines. So they were trying to achieve pulse detonation in an open cycle piston engine or semi-open cycle. And then they were using a resonant cavity tube to spray or, or to direct this detonation wave in one direction. And they were actually trying to achieve this for the purposes of detonation-based spray coatings, right? So trying to spray material onto a substrate to create a, a form of, of supersonic deposition for coatings, right? Mm -hmm. But what this demonstration and technology proves 
is that piston cycle systems can in fact handle detonation waves if they're engineered to do so. What what should I type in here at YouTube um, as a piston detonation cycle? What what's the name of the cycle that you'll be employing? Uh, Fickett Jacobs cycle. So it's uh, Foxtrot India Charlie Kilo Echo Tango Tango, and then that's Jacobs. That's Julia Alpha Charlie Oscar Bravo Sierra. <laughs> okay. Got it. Now, you're not going to see a lot of demonstrations or engine topologies or anything like that because most people, most people in industry believe that the Fickett Jacobs cycle is purely hypothetical. That is to say, it's commonly thought that nobody's ever done it before. That's not actually true. Roger Richard and myself have both done it before. We have achieved HCCI, homogenous charge compression ignition which is inherently more efficient than spark-controlled compression ignition. Mazda spent $100 million to fail at that one, um, right? There's just a, a lot of stuff mm -hmm. to, to cover here, so. Well, okay, so let's keep it simple because the majority of the people that are going to be listening to this, what they're going to be wanting, I, and I'm speaking for my audience, more so than like the deep tech on this is, Let's get into, there. there's one thing that you said to me that anybody can understand. When you have less moving parts, you're going to be inherently more, um, not only efficient, but reliable. And easier to maintain. Yes. And so one of my loves, I told you this back in the day, I had, uh, I had a Mazda RX-7. And I always loved the notion of a rotary engine because to me, it just made sense. But the, the, the rotary engine on that car, on my RX-7, was the biggest oil hog. There is a seal problem. And so if for those of you that don't know what the rotary engine is, essentially a three-dimensional Dorito spinning, <laughs> and the edges of the Dorito have a seal on it, and the seal is supposed to keep you know, everything separated. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, those are apex seals. The problem with apex seals is that they have a dynamically constantly changing angle of contact on the actual bilobe. So uh, there's two ways to build a rotary. There's the way Mazda did it with the WRX series. And um, they put a trilobe in a bilobe or in an ellipse, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what liquid piston is trying to do is they're trying to put a um, an ellipse in a trilobe. Yeah, they inverted it. Right, but whether the problem with rotaries is not just oil consumption and the dynamically changing angle of contact of the apex seals. The other problem is that they have a high surface area to volume ratio. So that is the geometry of the combustion chambers <clears throat> lend themselves to high heat loss and inefficiencies as a result. Mm -hmm. And we all know a cold engine is a, not a happy engine. We had George Weissman on a few uh, episodes ago and we were talking about, we, I actually brought you guys up <laughs> because I know that you're fans of, of his work. And um, he was talking about all the different engine mods that he used to do to get his efficiencies. And um, <laughs> he was telling me from a mechanics perspective, you don't want your engine to cool down because then your fuel doesn't vaporize and then your, your upshits creak a little bit. Yeah, if you can make an engine out of, you know, ultra high temperature refractories that had good tribological properties, 
that would be the way to go. Unfortunately, we don't have that nanoscience quite yet, but mm-hmm. you know, for the purposes of efficiency, you want to run your engine as hot as possible. Right. Yeah, because then you get more vapor. Vapor detonates much easier. So you're going to your Jacob Cycle engine here, Fickett Jacob Cycle engine. I'm not seeing much here on YouTube. This is essentially you're going to achieve combustion at uh, TDC, right? Top dead center. Yeah, it's a pure isochoric detonation-based combustion cycle. So define isochoric. What does that Constant mean? Constant volume heat addition. That is all the heat is added at top dead center. So 100% of the fuel is, boom, burned at top dead center. And the whole stroke is used to convert that heat addition into mechanical energy. Now, what are you using to actually spark that? Uh, so we're actually going to be going for compression emission. So we're not trying to use a spark plug, right, which the threads of a spark plug introduce crevice volume, which can reduce the emissions profile. Spark plugs also introduce a lot of nodes of failure, right? So you have peaking caps that can fail. You have MSD ignition systems that can fail. You have wires that can fail, terminal and connection points that can fail, batteries that can fail, right? There's a lot of failure nodes on the spark ignition system. Mm -hmm. Uh, So by going with the compression ignition system, all that stuff was rendered redundant. And that's more like a diesel engine, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's compression ignition, but a diesel cycle is a very specific thermodynamic cycle. So a lot of people don't know this, but auto cycle, the auto cycle from a thermodynamics perspective is actually more efficient than the diesel cycle. So why is it then that all of our diesel engines get way more miles per gallon in efficiency than our auto cycle engines? Well, there's a reason. The reason is that Diesel engines run much higher compression ratios than auto cycle engines, because mm-hmm. if auto cycle engines ran the same compression ratios as diesel cycle engines, the conventional auto cycle engines that are currently built would detonate the fuel, they would go into the thicket Jacob cycle, and they would immediately explode a fraction of a second lighter, because they're not designed to withstand the forces of detonation. Mm-hmm. But if we do design an engine, which we have, that can withstand the forces of detonation, then there's no problem. Then we can have compression ignition like a diesel cycle and pure isochoric heat addition, similar, well, more isochoric. So another weird thing is that a lot of people, academia in particular, claims that the auto cycle engine is constant volume, but it's actually not. If you look at high-speed videography of transparent cylinder heads, um, we can actually see that there is a sliding spectrum between true constant volume and true constant pressure, and the reality always lies somewhere in in between. And so the auto cycle is way, or quote-unquote auto cycle engines built today are way closer to an ideal diesel cycle, which is isobaric, that is constant pressure. They're way closer to constant pressure than they are constant volume in practice, even though the thermodynamic cycle mathematically shows that it's constant volume, it's, it's really not. It's a more, more akin to a constant pressure cycle. And that's because the fuel burns subsonically. So it burns so, so slowly and so cold, burns so slowly that you're getting lots of heat addition even after that exhaust valve is opened by the cam load, right? So it's just not very good. It's, it's not a very good way to build engines. But if we compression ignite the fuel, detonate it at top dead center, boom, go into the thick of Jacob cycle. Now we have pure isochore, constant volume heat addition, way more efficient, way more reliable, way cleaner, lower emissions. We can run on any combustible fuel without adjustment, right? So we can run gas, diesel, kerosene, JPA. We can run waste motor oil, 
waste vegetable oil, burned brake fluid, crude oil, coal and charcoal water slurry fuel. You name it, if it burns, you can burn it. That's brilliant. Yeah, because I'm looking at the ASF claims here for their engine, and they say the thermal efficiency with the with the way they're standardizing standardizing the Scotch Yoke engine is about 35.3%, which is nothing that's to comparable to a diesel engine. Which is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, um, that's actually much better than most conventional engines, correct? Yeah, most conventional gas engines are between 20 and 28%. Yeah, because I remember, you know, Honda, who's like normally one of the more efficient engine makers out there, you know, they they were claiming around 21, 22% uh, thermal efficiency. So to to be, you know, 33% better than that is pretty good. You were telling me at your, now, now I understand this better because ever since coming to your shop, I've done more and more research on this. And... You were telling me that you guys are shooting for over 50% thermal efficiency, correct? Yes. Yes, we are. And that we believe strongly that we can achieve this with relative ease just by going into the Pickett Jacob cycle engine with and that's with no heat reclamation, no EGR, no computer controlled anything, right? That's with you know cylinder porting, which has a low volumetric efficiency, right? So there's a lot of things stacked against us, right? Our current um, prototypes are all cylinder ported. We'd like to, at least on the future models, use reed valves for the half liter. We're still gonna keep cylinder porting for the 1.5 cc, but we're gonna use reed valves for the half liter commercial commercial grade engines that'll improve volumetric efficiency. We're gonna switch away from conventional deflector head pistons and use QUB deflectors. We're going to bump up the compression ratio quite a bit from where it's at now, right? So there's a lot of modernization tweaks that we need to go through, at least with the half liter version. Our 1.5cc version is basically ready to produce right now. All we need is a customer to, you know, justify spooling up a production line. Right. So for a production line, how many units would you have to produce? Um, I would say if we could get... It depends on the price that we can agree to. The minimum price that I'm willing to accept now for low volume runs is $15,000 per engine, just because low volume production is so much more expensive. You don't, we don't get a lot of economies of scale advantages, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at $15,000, I would say minimum order of five. Oh, okay. Because I could see a real market for the fact that these, another reason why I like the, the shape of this particular engine is because i've always been a flat for a boxer engine fan yeah flat. drop them in subarus volkswagen beetles yeah, yeah. On, you know old bmw motorcycles if you can get one with a uh, transmission yeah i had once i went to a um, a high performance mechanic shop my friend was racing his m3 and i was in the shop and they had up on the lift one of the 911 turbos i don't know which variation of it and I was looking at it and I was just kind of in awe of the machine and the mechanics like, yeah, that's the best car made in the world right now. And I thought he was just trying to sell me on it. And he's like, no, no, really. Like, and he went into the engineering of it and he was, he was telling me about how the turbos work and just the, he said that particular car had over 160,000 miles on it. A doctor owned it. He used it as his daily driver and every weekend he would come in on Friday, they'd switch out to racing tires and he'd race it on Saturdays. 
they'd switch the tires back on Sunday and then he'd drive it all throughout the week. Yep. And he said the car never, never had any problems. He never had any problems with the flat six motor. And, um, I've had Subarus, I've had two Subarus in my life and they used to have head gasket problems. And so it, it makes me happy that you're getting away from having, you know, uh, he heads on, on your particular. Yeah, you get rid of that. So again, there's a lot of things that detonation will break on a conventional engine. It'll fuss connecting rods. It'll blow holes through thin-topped aluminum pistons. Mm -hmm. It'll crush the oil layer between the, the insert bearings. So it'll crush the oil boundary layer. It'll, you know, bend, bend connecting rods. It'll break journals. It'll do also, it'll destroy valve trains. It'll do all sorts of nasty stuff, right? So what we do is we just get rid of all the parts that break. Destroys valves, get rid of the valves. Destroys head gaskets, get rid of the head gaskets. Oh, it bends connecting rods, keep the connecting rods straight at all times. Mm -hmm. Oh, it crushes the oil layer, increase oil, uh, the oil boundary layer, the insert bearings, increase oil foam load distribution by 300%. That's very, wonderful. Very simple stuff. If you just get rid of the parts that break, then you don't got to worry about them breaking. So I would just introduce <laughs> you to like a uh, BRZ racing club throw one of your your flat four bork engines into uh, one of these brzs or uh what is it the gr86 toyota that have the flat fours yeah is i mean it, i'm open-minded to whatever because those engines go in there and what would you think your four-cylinder engine of because you're you're making a very small 1.5 liter but you you can scale one, one so our, our current so we have two current versions we have the 125 cc Mm -hmm. which is very small that's just over one tenth of a liter and then we have a 500 cc version which is half a liter mm -hmm. so a straight a flat four would be a thousand cc's mm -hmm. and that would produce about 300 horsepower naturally aspirated ah oh, that's so amazing with that low center of gravity with being it being so light <laughs> that's magnificent the, the engine would weigh in at just under 80 pounds well, I have the, uh, in doing my research, I found that there's one fail point that people claim is the Scotch yoke. So I'm just going to bring this up um, and see what your thoughts are on it. Um, it's essentially this bearing. Yeah. So again, people just assume that that's just a pin that goes through it and it just scrapes along the surface. That's not actually true. There's a rolling element bearing between the pin and the actual slot of the yoke. And so it's actually rolling up and down on that thing, like almost like a shoe, right? So if you have a rolling element bearing, I don't know if you can see this hose on my camera, right? This mm -hmm. is a cover fitting. But if it's rolling right in the slot, then there's no friction there. So again, that, that's just people just assuming that that's just a pin that's scraping on the in that slot, but that's not true. There's a free rolling element bearing. Yeah, this animation shows a bearing, and I didn't understand exactly. They said that whenever you put a lateral force against a bearing, that that causes the bearing actually to fail. And I didn't quite understand that description. Yeah, um, if it's yeah, well, if your bearing is if the force is being applied parallel to the axis of rotation of the bearing, of course it'll fail, but we're not doing that. What type of bearing are you going to use? I mean, that thing has, that that's taking a lot of force. 
So we're going to be, we are using a superposed matryoshka bearing. So it's actually a bearing and a bearing and a bearing and a bearing. Made out of <laughs> yeah. So, it's, and it's made out of solid bronze bearing stock that's treated with calcium nanoparticle technology, which increases effectively reduces friction by 85% compared to mean. <clears throat> and by doing this, we can really increase the amount of oil cushion between the, the actual scotch yoke mechanism and the journal pin of the crankshaft itself. So obviously if you have, you know, 300% more oil load distribution and more oil cushion, when that detonation pulse happens, boom, that so much more oil cushion is gonna really be able to take that blow just fine. That's great. <clears throat> that's wonderful. So for a home generator, because that's, I, I think the majority of the people that watch this podcast, they're going to be looking for some sort of home generation. And I'm always talking about wood gasification. As you know, I'm big into biochar, into making, you know, using wood gas as much as possible as, as a fuel. And that's one of the things I really like about these particular types of motors is that you can use so many different types of fuel. What, what do you think an average homesteader would need to be able to be uh, let's just call it electrically independent, um, given given this type of generator? Depends on how far we can develop the technology, but our goal is if you can build a charcoal kiln, you can build motor fuel for it. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you'll take biomass, carburize it or carbonize it in a charcoal kiln, turn it into charcoal, chop up you know the charcoal, you know, turn it, pulverize it to dust in a hammer mill, mix it with water to create charcoal water slurry fuel, and then run that into your engine and you're good to go. Yeah, you were the first person to ever share that with me. And I, I have yet to actually look that up because I do, I make lump charcoal. That's what biochar is. And so you were telling me that this was a pretty widely used fuel in the past. Yeah, yeah, it was very common and prolific in the 19th century and early 20th century. It's still pretty prolific in the Eastern Bloc, right? In uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, et cetera. They still use cold water slurry fuel made from mined coal. Mm -hmm. Whether the coal is mined or is charcoal, it doesn't really matter. The process, you know, the, the fundamentals are the same regardless. And it is comparable to bunker oil. Uh, some ships will run cold water slurry fuel where they can get it because it is so much cheaper than actual bunker oil and it's comparable to bunker oil. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I had never heard that term either before, bunker oil. Bunker oil is what a lot of large marine ships, like a maritime, you know, uh, fleet cargo vessels will run on bunker oil. When you're making this this charcoal slurry, what's your ratio? Wow, that stuff looks thick. Yeah, well, it really depends on what you're going for. Different ratios will yield different properties. So yeah, it's it's a whole science in and of itself. But I, I'd rather spare your audience. <laughs> okay, so let's just get back to this this charcoal fuel. Actually, the this this water slurry, because this goes back to what Weissman and I were talking about. George Weissman and I were talking about um, with the potential energy in water and being able to run engines or let's just call them combustion motors with with aspects of the water um when you run this type of of charcoal slurry what exactly is happening 
Uh, well, there's a couple things that can happen depending on your setup, but if you're really smart, what, one of the things that you can do is actually use the carbon as a sacrificial pseudocatalyst to rip apart the covalent bonds between hydrogen and oxygen, and then it'll oxidize the carbon to form carbon monoxide, which is mm -hmm. a gas, and then the three hydrogen atom is left over, so now you'll be inputting three carbon monoxide and hydrogen gas into your engine. Mm -hmm. which will be very clean burning, instantly charge homogenous, lots of good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that the rocket heaters do so well, too, is they burn so hot that they burn all the carbon monoxide up. That's something I tell my clients all the time is like, you know, you get these things up to heat and they're a, 2000 degrees in the or more in the thermal battery and that just carbon monoxide burns at 1800 degrees. So there's nothing to worry about with that, with, with that at, inside your home. Yeah. It, it's clean. <laughs> yeah. It's only vented because of the CO2 and to get proper draft, but yeah. It's a clean burning system. Yeah. This is wonderful. So uh, how do you see things going for your company? Has, have your products been well-received? Uh, I've had mixed results in terms of reception. Everybody who's bought one loves it just about. Um, the hard part is getting the info out there that we even exist. You know, most people still don't know anything about rocket stoves. Most people never heard of it. Most people that buy a wood stove won't even think of a rocket stove or consider it. So that's one of our challenges. We have to educate the market that we exist. Yes. Yeah. I have this similar thing. Uh, uphill climb because I build domes <laughs> and dome homes are, you know, they're, they've been on the market a little bit longer than rocket mass heaters, but, uh, are I can't you build a dome home for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I had a dome home in Costa Rica and then, uh, we've only been here in this part of Missouri for a little over six months. And so, uh, we've actually gotten quotes to clear the building pad and everything like that. So I'm uh, getting ready to do foundation work pretty soon here. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So um, so I know exactly what you're going through when you have to educate people as to the why. <laughs> like, why, why would we do something different? And when it comes to homes, I'm like, you know, stick stick built homes are great but they're not all that resilient they don't last all that long they take a ton of energy to heat and cool and uh they're only used because they're familiar precisely and so when i get into the advantages the thermal advantages of aircrete and dome homes and the amount of energy it takes to heat and cool those people perk up but it's such a weird thing it's it's novel so so i feel you so good, good news for you. A couple of the homes I'm designing, I actually have your units in there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. So, because um, now it used to be that, uh, you know, you could pick up a decent uh, wood-fired, like, you know, insert that was made with good metal for like a thousand bucks. Now there's so much more money. And I'm like, guys, these are just a waste of wood and time. Like if you have all the time in the world to like cut your wood and cure it and do all this, go for it. But there, you don't get any of the advantages, especially if you're going to do some sort of rocket mass heating where you're like sitting on a nice, you know, day bed or couch, or I'm going to use mine as a, uh, 
a heater for my cast iron bathtub, <laughs> big old loungy uh, bathroom area. Um, but all your heat with a lot of these conventional fireplaces just goes out outside. <laughs> it's gone. You're burning wood for, for the outside environment. And you get such little heat actually, you know, pushed into the living space. So that's one of the things I'm always telling people about is like, if you have all the time and the money to waste, then go for it. But if, if you really want to have a more interactive experience with your wood fire and you want to use a lot less of your time in splitting wood and curing it, uh, these are the way to go. Yep. So let me just pull that up real quick because I have it here. We're actually uh, just received a patent on a heater heating system and power generation system that's probably going to take two to three years to develop and commercialize. Hopefully not any longer, but we'll see. But it's actually going to be a solid fuel gas turbine engine that can run on any combustible material, including wood chips, pellets, and cordwood. And so, yeah, that, that's what's coming next is a, a Tesla turbine powered, not a steam turbine, not an external combustion turbine, no, 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 an internal combustion gas Tesla turbine cogeneration combined heat and power system capable of producing five kilowatts of electricity continuously with 100,000 BTU an hour fuel consumption rate. That's amazing. I didn't know if we were allowed to bring that up or not. Yeah. But that's yeah. Gonna be, you know, three, two, three, four years before we can even commercialize that. Well, I'm super excited about that one because you have you're talking my language when you talk about Tesla turbines. And because I've I've messed around with Tesla turbines for about 15 years. Um just making little mock-ups out of CDs back in the day and just testing them with water. Um Let's see here. Well, the thing with Tesla turbines is that there's no industry inertia and very little research about them. So things like the disc pack sizing, right? The diameter to right. you know, energy production ratio, the, the spacing, the thickness of the discs, right? The port injection angle, right? The angle of the port. All these, you know, even the, the hole sizes, where the rivets should be, the use and geometry of star washers. All this stuff, all this is unknown variables, and they all have such a profound effect on each other that it's really hard for a Tesla turbine to gain commercialization in the modern market that has so much industry inertia behind conventional bladed turbines that are already operating at, you know, 60% thermal efficiency. You know, it's, it's hard for a Tesla turbine to justify that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been described as a solution looking for a problem, and we found that problem which is the combustion of solid solid fuels, which has super high ash content because the disks are impervious to ash and particle contamination. Whereas ash and particle contamination of a conventional turbine will destroy the blades via erosion. And mm -hmm. Tesla turbine is not true there. It's impervious to particulate contamination. And so now we can justify the development of a Tesla turbine for the specific mission profile of solid fuel combustion and converting that solid fuel heat into electrical energy. Why would the ash not affect the Tesla turbine? Because it's moving parallel to the to the uh, disk faces. 
So there's no ablate, there's no uh, erosion. Whereas an ablated turbine, the particle will hit the fan blade and it's, you know, it's deflected at, you know, a specific angle. Right. You know, a little over 90 degree angle, right? When it hits that fan blade, that turbine blade, mm -hmm. it's like a sandblaster, it just causes erosion. Whereas in a Tesla turbine, these ashes and particles are moving parallel to the disc faces, and so there's no sandblast effect. Do your are your nozzles going to be fluted so the gases spiral? Like, is there any advantage to like a, a the gas coming out of it in a certain, I guess you'd say, flow form? Well, I mean, obviously there's going to be an advantage in that, but we don't know what the optimal geometry is because there's not enough industry research or inertia behind it. Mm -hmm. We're just going to use a supersonic D Laval nozzle to convert the high delta T into a high delta V so that so we can speed up the gas flow at the cost of temperature and pressure so we can get that gas velocity up there, which is what turbine can really run on is velocity. Right. Right. And uh and then we're just gonna, you know, pick a port angle and a volute size to go with and just go with that. And if it's 15, if it's a relatively low thermal efficiency, like 15%, I'm happy with that because it doesn't matter because this is wood that's typically burned for the for, for its heat content anyway. Mm -hmm. So if we can reclaim, you know, five to 20%, higher is better, obviously, but if even at only 5%, heat reclamation into electrical energy, that's still profound. That's still, you know, game changing for the industry. That's awesome. What, what's the material? Well, there's two questions I have. These Tesla turbines spin at incredible RPMs. That's rotations per minute. What type of alternator will convert that speed into a usable electricity under load? We're going to do a really stupid system uh, because we're building this to be integrated into solar power systems, right? So you got your 48 volt battery, you have your inverter, your charge control, all that stuff, right? We're going to use a really dumb system and just have a large belt ratio, belt and pulley ratio, mm -hmm. to reduce the speed to feed into a brushed DC generator. Great. Very well, that's simple enough. Is there any, there's so many different companies out there that have their 48 volt systems, you know, you have Solark, you have Blue T, you have Anchor. Do, are any, do any of these companies jump out at you as a preferable, um, I guess you would say, power storage unit? No, no, I don't really have, a, I don't know enough to have an opinion on the subject. Okay. Yeah, because I've done, I'm, as a contractor, I personally hire solar people to come in and do solar installations and i've been a part of four four buildings where they've done full off-grid solar installations and those are not cheap i have to say each one of them when it's come down to it for a, a minimum of a five kilowatt system they ran about 50 to fifty-five thousand dollars after installation yeah the idea that you know places in developing nations, especially like Africa, Southeast Asia, South America, that, oh, they're just going to use solar. If, no. rich, if rich Americans can't go off-grid with solar, there's no way a village in Ghana is going to do it. Another thing about solar that a lot of people don't think about, and this is, I had, I had personal experience with this, is in Florida, we were going to go ahead and do solar, but in 2004, we had three hurricanes roll through our county. 
So that essentially made all the solar <laughs> non-functional because <laughs> those panels don't really like it, you know, 100, 120 mile per hour winds. It's unreliable, but a generator in the basement or, or Florida doesn't have basements, but, you know. In your shed. Or, or in a pickup truck. Right. right? If a pickup truck has an onboard motor generator, which it should anyway, especially with this high efficiency engine technology. Mm -hmm. Now we have plenty of space left over due to it being much more compact, more efficient. Right. On yards, you can just plug your appliances in your house into your truck and power your house using your pickup truck. You'll get a kick out of this. Uh, I have a friend that he's a brilliant doctor and he didn't want to pay any type of uh, real estate property tax. So he found this loophole in Florida where if he bought a commercial building and kept it commercial, he bought, he bought this old storage facility. <laughs> and um, because it's not uh, technically his domicile, he doesn't pay property tax on it. But what's so cool about this, this particular the setup they did, he put all these solar panels on, on the top of the building and he went around the country and got all these uh, Nissan Leaf cars that are, you know, the they're the battery hybrid system. Yep. And he would get them at auction for like three grand. And he was like, Gardner, you know, each one of these has like a five five kV battery in it or kilowatt um, watt hour battery in it, even if they're only running at 60, 70 percent efficiency. During a hurricane, whenever the hurricanes roll through, I can just turn on the engine on each one of these cars and run my place no problem. I don't I don't even have a hiccup in my energy. Yep. And I love that system because I was looking at now they sell the Toyota Tundra and the Ford F-150 where the engine is actually charging a battery and you can supplement your home with seven kilowatts. On yeah. one on one on one gas tank, you can run your house, just a standard house that's that's consuming five to six kilowatts a day. You can you can actually run your house for up to 80 hours. Yeah. I love that. I think that's such a smart thing. Yeah, we can take that so much further. Oh, I know. Obviously, the problem with a lot of contemporary car and truck designs that there there's a lot of planned obsolescence baked in you yes you cannot maintain them uh proprietary software it's illegal to modify the wiring or the emissions or whatever right very complex hard to reach to uh, and access componentry we're I'm, we're going to do away with all that that's great i mean they're they're i'm so happy that you're out there sky you're really doing the good work and I really appreciate everything that you're putting into this because, I mean, I don't know if, well, you have never heard their story, but it's something I've said on the podcast before. When I lived in Central America, you get a dryer, like a conventional dryer to dry your clothes, it would die within a year. No matter how much you spent, you could buy the most expensive or least expensive. So I, I've looked at breadboards before. I know how to actually test transistors and capacitors and all the rest of it. <clears throat> and so we took a couple of these machines apart, got to the to the to the master board, and wouldn't you know it, there was always a failure on one transistor, and it was the only transistor that didn't have any identification on it. So that's the planned obsolescence. 
Yeah, that's just pretty, it's pretty pervasive. Yeah. And so I have uh, a few clients of mine that have gotten the Tesla cars and they'll never the get worst. them and they'll never the get them again. Yeah, no, Tesla is the worst. And people are under the misconception that because it's primarily electric, it's, it's more environmentally friendly. And <laughs> I get a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I get all these, these, uh, skewed looks when i tell people that hey you know conflict metals they're trying to build a market to justify more war but uh the whole notion i've been trying to tell everybody that would listen that wood gasification by far has the has the most like direct energy conservancy that i've i've come across not solar not battery electric, none of this stuff. Like if if you have biomass, which almost all of us do have, have biomass around us or can get it, you can convert that into all the energy you need. Yep. <laughs> well, my biomass man. is the way to go. Yeah, I hear you. So Sky, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience before before I let you rock? No, I think that pretty much covers it. I appreciate the opportunity. If there's any other questions you have for me, let me know. I'm going to be uh, making doing another presentation at the Energy Science and Technology Conference in Spokane, Washington, hosted by eMedia Press uh, in about a month. What's the gentleman's name out there that's making, he has a Tesla turbine out there. Did you check out his? Yeah, his name is Jeremiah Forwardy, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah, so he he's an interesting character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what what do you think he has a good thing going with his his design on his Tesla turbine? I don't know enough about his design to comment on it. Okay, good man. Well, Sky, I will uh, continue to tag you on all the stuff that I post on your Liberator Rocket Stoves on um, Instagram. And uh, we'll put some links to everything for you, for your company on, on this podcast. We'll probably post this Friday. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. You have a great rest of your day, Christopher. You too, Sky. Have a good one. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sky Huddleston. Many, many, many brilliant folk that I know, especially that when we start talking about technical things, have this very direct way of speaking. So in our chat, if you have any questions about what we are discussing, please check out the BioCharisma podcast chat. Um, I will be posting a chat link in the Telegram uh, post of this, and I will also have that chat link up in all the uh, podcast purveyors so that you guys can uh, ask questions if you do have questions, because I know I have questions <laughs> after that interview. Uh, there was, I, I, I thought I did my homework for this, and I was like blown out of the water. Uh, I have to say, um, gasoline and diesel engines and all the different names and all the different, you know, I'm definitely, you know, a novice at this, at this stuff. But I can assure you with the quality of what they're making, and where Sky's mind is at, I've, I've seen prototypes and um, even at the level of investment that they're at, his prototypes are pretty stellar. So uh, yeah, check out his, his site and know if you end up do, if you end up getting a rocket mass heater 
from Liberator Rocket Heaters, uh, they put the majority of their profits towards the generator and engine development, which is really exciting stuff. Um, I'm not sold at all on electric cars. I think electric hybrids are, are cool. I like the idea of supplementing uh, some torque and some power with electric motors. I've been a huge RC car fan, electric RC car fan since I was 10 years old. So this to me is a natural progression of things. But like we talked about in the interview, so many of these systems are so complicated and there are less and less people that can work on these things now. It's not like, you know, 30 years ago where everybody had a brother or an uncle that was a mechanic. <laughs> and those were much simpler days of motors. Like now there is planned obsolescence. The electronics in these things go bad all the time. The battery failure as somebody who's, installed and rectified a ton of batteries. Trust me, the battery technology has been frozen for a very long time. You can get some of these newer systems apparently are more reliable, but if you get five years, I'm telling you five years out of some of these batteries, thank your lucky stars. Especially if you live in a high humidity environment, these things do not, they don't, they don't last. And, uh, you know, I have to say the solar, the solar system, all these types of systems where you're dealing with all these metals that come from abroad, ask yourself, would this, would this supplemental energy for my farm or my homestead uh, work in case of a, let's just say a, a stoppage in airline traffic or shipping lanes? you need to have something local and local energy is clean energy because it didn't travel that far to get to you. And as we said in the interview, biomass by far is, is the most local energy source to you. Everybody has to prune their trees. Everybody has to cut their lawn. I mean, you can literally, I mean, there's, there's places in urban settings where they have 10,000 pallets and they don't know what to do with all the pallets. You could take those pallets and convert that into fuel. And so the fuel that we're talking about is all this biomass has gas in it. And this gas can be extracted through these, this neat little system of retorts. So I will be bringing to market a small retort system for biochar. And in the future, that could be modified to make fuel if you wanted. So, and I'm just making them out of like literally barrels that you can get anywhere. So I'm, of course, you can make all these systems super advanced, but I'm a low tech guy because I want to be able to work on it. And the more high tech you make things, the more difficult they are to work on. And I hope Sky was able to impress that upon you with the motors that they'll be making that will be generators is that these motors have very few moving parts, which means they'll be more reliable and they'll be something that you can fix if you need to. So keep that in mind for resilience because this podcast and my website is all about building resilience for the future. So thank you for joining us. If you want to check out my work, 
You can go to TopherHQ.com. If you want to check out Sky's work, you can go to LiberatorHeater.com. Or I think it's called Rocket Heater. I'll put the link in there. Yes, RocketHeater.com. And we uh, are going to be back. I have great interviews lined up. I am doing four interviews this week. I think I'll be on uh, the one-on-one podcast uh, probably next week and Emily Moyer podcast again. Uh, she wanted to geek out on some things. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the uh, birthday bash with Big Bear. That was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm really appreciating your guys' support. You're coming out in droves and, and supporting the cast. Um, and you can do that at TopherHQ.com. And uh, I really appreciate that. So I'll be seeing you guys very soon. I can tell.